A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Hello, and thank you for joining us on another episode of A Thoughtful Faith. I am happy to have with me Professor Bob Reese. Bob, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Um, Bob Reese is described as an educator, scholar, and poet. Um, he holds a bachelor's uh, in English and French from Brigham Young University, a master's in literature from the University of Wisconsin, and a PhD in literature and philosophy also from the University of Wisconsin. Uh, Bob has taught arts and humanities at a number of universities, including the University of Wisconsin, UCLA, UC Santa Cruz, Vitotas Magnus University in Lithuania, and California State Universities at Northridge in Los Angeles, and he currently teaches religion at Graduate Theology Union in Berkeley. Bob has served in numerous leadership positions within the church, including as a bishop and high counselor. Um, he and his wife, Ruth, served as education, humanitarian, and service missionaries in the St. Petersburg, Russia, and Baltic States missions. Interestingly, in October 1992, Bob and his wife became the first LDS church missionaries to work in Lithuania after the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, he was also Dialogue's second editor for most of the 70s. Um, Bob and his wife, Ruth, uh, have four kids and seven grandkids, and uh, just learned from talking to Bob, uh, sadly, that his wife passed away last February. And so we give our sorrow and condolences to you for that. Thank you very much. Um, so Bob is a um, is also the author, or I, I should say the editor, of a, of a compilation of essays called Why I Stay, which is how I was first introduced to, to his work. Um, and uh, some of the people that we've interviewed on A Thoughtful Faith are featured there, and uh, hopefully we can get a few more of the, the writers and authors and, and scholars um, that contributed to that volume later on in, on our podcast. Um, but we're especially excited to have you with us, Bob, um, because I think you have a very valuable approach to Mormonism, and I think that definitely is presented well in some of your writings, which we will be discussing. Um, before we dive into all that, though, I think our listeners would love to know a little bit about your backstory. And so if you wouldn't mind telling us what we need to know about Bob Reese. Well, I'm not quite sure what's uh, relevant. Uh, one of the things that I think is interesting is that I am, um, that in my family, my great-great-grandparents were converts to the church from Fishguard, Wales, in the middle of the 19th century. But uh, my family has been converted separately in four different generations. So there was an interruption, huh. a conversion interruption in, in each generation. And, um, and so I am the fifth generation Latter-day Saint, but uh, uh, it's a complicated story. But, but you're also a convert to the church. Yes. <laughs> that is interesting. That's, <laughs> yeah, you don't hear that too often. <laughs> That's very cool. So how did your, how did your uh, family uh, uh, find the church again? 
my father was uh, converted uh, to a miraculous priesthood blessing and uh, uh, then went to the Second World War. And when he came home, he taught me the gospel and I joined the church. Uh, so, but his his mother was converted to the church in uh, southwestern Colorado by Mormon missionaries. His father was never a member of the church, even though his name was Zoram. Uh, his, really? <laughs> his grandfather uh, was the uh, son of uh, my great-great-grandfather immigrated to the church from Wales, but he left the church and joined the reorganized church, so... It's a, it's a, as I say, it's a complicated history, but yeah, well, it's an interesting history. That's really cool. Yeah, so, so I'm just going to say, I you know, from the time that I first heard about uh, Mormonism, I struck a resonant chord, even though I was a young man, and uh, I've been uh, active, uh, maybe you could even say, furiously active in the church uh, my whole life, and uh, find myself to be still very much engaged in it and very interested in it, but also uh, feeling I have a stewardship to try and... and I, I, when I spoke to students at the Institute a couple of months ago, I asked them what the name of the church was. I said, I said whose church is it? And they said, well, it's the Church of Jesus Christ. And I said, well, the, the name of the church has two possessives. It's the Church of Jesus Christ, but it's also the Church of Latter-day Saints, and that means it's not the Church of the First Presidency or the Quorum of the Twelve, but it's the Church of all Latter-day Saints, and therefore we have a stewardship to make it uh, a, a living church as the Lord describes it in the Doctrine and Covenants. And so I've taken that position in regard to the church that it is my church as well, and that I have tried to devote my life to making it uh, a better, more responsive, more Christian church, and that's you know, kind of how I see my relationship to it. Yeah, that's, I really like what you said there. And um, one of the writings that, that we will discuss is um, your article that's called Forgiving the Church and Loving the Saints that was published in Sunstone. And that's a, that's a big theme that's present in that article that I definitely want to discuss with you. Um, right. But before we di- dive into all that stuff, are there any... Um, you know, I think it'd be interesting to first kind of circle around your your personal approach to to Mormonism. Obviously, that's a very <laughs> it's pretty, everybody's relationship is not only very personal but also very complicated and pretty maybe hard to even really describe. But um, is there anything you'd like to tell us about your approach to Mormonism or your experiences with Mormonism, either as a teenager or on your mission or in your service within the church? Obviously, you have some. You must have some pretty amazing experiences given your your missionary work um, in the former Soviet bloc. And so, uh, whatever you feel like sharing, I, I I know personally, I'd love to to hear what you what you have to share that makes your uh, perspective and approach yours and unique and different. Well, I, you know, part of my approach is that I think that God has blessed us with both a heart and a mind and ex- expects us to use both of them in search for truth and in trying to find Him and our relationship with Him. So there are people, I, I, I'm, I sometimes say I distrust two kinds of Mormons, those who never think and those who only think. <laughs> uh, because I feel myself that I, it is a combination, it is the dialogue between our heart and our mind that I think uh, gives us the greatest chance of finding truth. 
That is, we recognize the limitations of both thinking and feeling, but we also recognize that when thinking and when that is when our intuitive and imaginative and creative self gets in dialogue with our cognitive rational self and is willing to face whatever the consequences of that dialogue might be, I, I at least I trust that process because it also leads me to enter into dialogue with other hearts and minds to try and I, I'm very involved in interfaith work and have been for some years. I'm very interested in interfaith dialogue. I'm also just interested in the process of people talking to and listening to one another and sharing their their stories uh, as well, that is their thoughts as well as their emotional life. It is those things I think make for a richly textured life both in the church and uh, and outside the church. I I think there there is a a tendency for us to escape to the poles. That is, there are people. I I think it's it's easy for people and understandable for people to want either simple resolutions or certainty. And so most people don't live in that middle territory where there is ambiguity and paradox and uncertainty and doubt uh, as well as belief. And yet, for me, that's where the most dynamic faith exists, that is, people who want only to have a rational approach to the church miss its deep spiritual life, and those who wish only to approach it from the, the position of belief uh, miss the great mystery and the great excitement that comes when we try and probe the depths of the, the the profundities of the gospel, and so there is for me. I I see a relationship between the church itself and what it provides as an imperfect instrument in God's hands, as we all are imperfect instruments in His hands. So I think between that lived experience and the uh, you know the attempt to try and understand probe, uh, question, challenge, investigate the deep uh, truths that, um, that we know of uh, as part of the restored gospel. I really like what you said there. And I, I sort of, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I sort of detect almost an Aristotelian concept of, of balance and virtue in, in, in the way you approach sort of the relationship between um, certainty and and disbelief in the same way that Aristotle promoted certain virtues as sort of the moderate balance between two extremes. What you seem to be promoting, at least from my my take on on some of your your articles that you've written, is that there is a balance between um, the extremes of of certainty and unbelief, and that's where faith exists, and that faith you know, in and of itself, by definition, can exist without the presence of some doubt or some uncertainty. Is that a fair... Um, yeah, I, Paul, in, uh, in his book called Dynamic Faith, Paul Tillich talks about um, doubt not as something which is questioning so much. As, he, he saw doubt as a an act of faith, because doubt is something which is seeking 
resolution in truth. It may not find it, but it is the pursuit of resolution through doubt that often leads us to a greater and deeper faith, uh, or may lead, it may lead us to a conclusion that there's some certain things that we can't know. But but it, it, as I read the, the scriptures, God um, is inviting us to reason with Him, and 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 God I think expects us to challenge Him. I know some people think that's heretical, but you know Hugh Nibley said you know the church fathers. Uh, when they saw the injustice of the world, they they raised their fist to heaven and challenged God for the injustice that they saw and for the things that they felt were wrong with the world. And Nibley says, and God loved them for it. That is, that God does not disapprove of or frown on our honest inquiry and our, our, our challenging the whole issue of theodicy or the, you know, the, the fairness of God or the fairness of the world that we live in but God created us so he wants us to do that, and not to do that at the exclusion of faith and belief, not to do it uh, in a vacuum. And that, I think, is part of the problem. I, was, I had a conversation with a friend last night from Las Vegas, and he was invited to a group of uh, uh, Latter-day Saints who are kind of on the margin, and uh, many of whom no longer really believe and have kind of left the church or they're on the margins of the church. And uh, as you know, they were saying, well, DNA, you know, that, uh, the DNA in the Book of Mormon, that certainly uh, explodes that and leaves the, you know, the Book of Mormon can't be true and problems with the Book of Abraham. And so people, I think, who don't really maybe have the level of sophistication or the level of faith hear these things, and then they bolt from the church, and in bolting from the church, they miss the rich spiritual and cultural life that the church has to offer. And so I think that the, you know, part of the, the, the essay that I'm, long essay I'm writing right now, which is called The Cost of Discipleship, which was about the, uh, the dimensions of a mature Mormon faith, is that as we just as, as the Lord speaks in the Doctrine and Covenants of the Church as being a living church. So I think our faith is a living faith, which means that it's dynamic, which means that it's changing, which means hopefully that it's growing, it's being tested, and, um, and it, is, it is when we jump to conclusions or when we don't have all of the facts or when we uh, somehow you know, make uh, conclusions from things that we hear or fragments of of truth or whatever, and so what happens is that, that I think is really sad is that there are a number of people who are self-disfellowshipping themselves from the church, and part of that I think is the church's fault or the fault of those of us in the church because you know, we, are, we don't talk honestly about the issues. We don't talk about in our Sunday school classes and our priesthood relief society classes and our young men's and young women's programs in the seminary program, we don't really talk about the quote-unquote issues or problems of the church. So when people grow up and they never hear this, and then suddenly they get on the Internet and they read all this stuff, and they think, oh, my gosh, I've been deceived, and they didn't tell me the truth, and, and they, they leave, or they stay on the margins of the church. And I, my, own, my own sense of ministry, if I could call it that, 
is that I I have felt from you know from the time I was a young man or certainly a young man in my twenties I felt that I had two kind of two callings in the church one is at the heart of the church and the other is at the edges of the fringe of the church because I see people uh, at the edges who sometimes fall off I uh, in a, a pillars of my faith talk I gave at Sunstone a number of years ago, I said I saw myself somewhat like the catcher in the rye in uh, Salinger's uh, novel, uh, who a young man there who sees himself as, you know, being in a field of rye, which is close to a cliff, and, and the kids playing in the field of rye don't know the cliff is there, and, and they might fall off, and so he's trying to keep them from falling off that cliff, and that, to some extent, is part of why I, uh, I do what I do, why I'm the kind of Latter-day Saint that I am, is that I, when people have doubts and feel guilty or feel they can't have them, or when people are afraid to ask questions, or when people find out something that isn't true and don't have anyone to talk to, I want to be there to, to talk to them. I want to sell, tell them that these are things that reasonable people and spiritual people can have a dialogue about. We may not come to a resolution, we may not come to, to truth, but in the process of talking about it, in the process of listening to one another, then we have a chance, not only a better chance of finding the truth, but I think a, a chance of creating the kind of fellowship that, um, that I associate with the best of Mormonism. Cool. That approach really resonates with me. There are a lot of different things uh, that you brought up there that I think would be good to kind of uh, look at. Because, um, you know, there seems to be a uh, sort of a new wave of, uh, of people that are uh, confronting disaffection to certain levels and extents in their lives. And I do like that, you know, I think it's fair to point out and not to invalidate the concerns that people have. Because like you said, people are, are raised with a, uh, brought up in the church at least for the past couple generations with a certain uh, expectation and concept of both um, the history of the church, its doctrine, its structure, and then often that expectation, regardless of um, how realistic or it is or not, it's, it's definitely one that, that people have, and it often sets them up for um, <laughs> a pretty tragic fall when they do encounter um, information that, that conflicts with that. And obviously, since we live in the information age where information is, you know, very easy to access, it's not hard for somebody to, to come across that stuff. And, uh, and though I, I don't feel the need to talk about specific issues that people have, one thing I do want to talk about with you is there seems to be a, a notion, and I'm, and I'm getting this not only from st recent statements by church leaders, but also by uh, my interactions with, with my own ward members, is that there's a concept that the information that's out there on the Internet is anti, or that it's out there to, to trick Latter-day Saints and to deceive them. And so the best way to deal with it is to avoid it and to hide from it and to, you know, only immerse yourself in in LDA and things with the church's logo or something that's sold at Deseret Book. 
And um, I imagine that, that 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 may be frustrating for somebody that creates a literature that falls outside of that that sphere of influence that is for you know the consumption of Latter Day Saints. Um, would you mind speaking to to that? Well, it's um, it's a really good uh, observation. The um, the fact is, there's a lot of danger, I think, on the internet for people who are not sophisticated enough to be able to sift and winnow uh, to judge it. And so a lot of uh, kids who are not prepared to um, for it get on there and then they don't have the tools. And this is true of adults as well. Uh, the there, there is, you know, Milton said, I cannot praise a cloistered virtue, uh, which is that it's, it's easy to be virtuous in, uh, in a monastery or in a, in a monastic uh, world or in a, uh, in a closed culture in which you don't let anything in that might be dangerous, whatever. And so what I think, but to me, the answer is not to live in a cocoon or not to build walls around ourselves, but it's to prepare uh, us to encounter whatever is out there and to make informed judgments. To me, it's it's a little bit like pornography. People who kind of stumble on it uh, on the Internet and have no idea of what it is or that um, uh, what its dangers are. And so part of what I think it means to be have a mature faith is to be able to, 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 within the context of what the gospel teaches, to be able to make informed judgments. But there, it's, it's true that there are people who would, would not read my stuff because it's published in Dialogue or Sunstone or in, uh, it's published by Signature Press or whatever. And I, I mean, I've published in The Ensign, I've published in BYU Studies, I've um, uh, I published uh, with Farms. I published with Signature. I published. Uh, I have worked out at Coford uh, Press. I, for me, I I don't I don't see this uh, us and them kind of thing. I think that we're out there trying to. You know, Edward Arlington Robinson said the world is a kind of kindergarten where the people are children and they're trying to spell God's name with the wrong blocks. Um, in a way, we are all kind of fumbling and, and trying to find a way, but, but we don't do it, I think, by either... I mean, for me, it's people who who flee to the center of the church, they don't want to hear anything that is, is negative or anything that is challenging, are like the people who just leave the church uh, because they, you know, for whatever reason. And it is... Um, it is when, you know, for example, I, mean, I, I go to church, and I love going to church. Uh, I, 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 I am the ward mission leader in our ward, and every Wednesday I, the missionaries come to my home for correlation meeting, and I feed them lunch, and we talk about what they're doing. And um, I, you know, people get up and bear their testimonies, and some of these are sweet, sweet people, Fijians and older people, and... Uh, Hispanics, and I don't go to church to be intellectually stimulated, and one <laughs> might say, thank heavens I don't, because that is, you know, that is not what uh, what I think I find there, but I go because I, I go to serve, 
I go not for what I can get out of it, although I get a lot out of it, and I find the fellowship there uh, very much a part of my life, and I find that there are there are holy things that happen there. There are sacred things that happen there. It doesn't always happen, but I go with the hope that it might. And sometimes you can sit through a whole sacrament meeting and it not happen, and other times you can hear two or three testimonies in a row that, uh, that touch you deeply, uh, or you have some brother or sister or child come up and give you a hug. Uh, you have... You have there, that is that is the part of the, the triworks. Uh, that's part of the, the forum in which we live and move and have our being. And I, but I have also a rich intellectual and cultural life that's not part of the church. Sometimes those worlds intersect, and that's wonderful for me, but very often they don't. So I think that people who go to church expecting that they're going to get something and they're really crabby because the lesson wasn't a very good lesson or because somebody said something dumb in their talk uh, or someone bore a silly testimony or whatever. The lack of charity that I find in those kinds of responses. I'm critical. I, mean, I, I, I love it when there's a really substantive sacrament meeting talk. I really love it when some teacher has really done a good job of preparing a lesson and makes me think. Uh, that's wonderful when it happens, but if it doesn't happen, I don't then throw the baby Jesus out with the bathwater. Yeah, I like I like what you said there because honestly, that's something that I have grappled with a lot myself over the past uh, several years. I've very much been that crabby person, and to a large extent, I still am somebody that gets really upset and frustrated, um, either um, because of my own boredom with uh, with certain lessons or uh, curricula, um, whether it's, you know, like you said, certain talks. I think um, <laughs> I think I myself have had a, a false assumption or expectation of what the Sunday meetings are there for. And so I really like that you bring that up um, because as somebody who's lacks patience in general anyway, sometimes church can be <laughs> a crucible to go through. And so I, so I really appreciate you you sharing that because that's that's something that I need to hear. Because I, oh, sorry, go ahead, Bob. Well, I, I was going to say, excuse me for interrupting because I thought what you were saying was important. But I, um, I also I, I also think it's important for us to be respectfully observant and respectfully critical when it's appropriate. If that is, there's a difference between someone who doesn't who never questions and challenges and someone for whom that is their life experience and so the reason that there's one kind of overriding well there I shouldn't say that but, there, but one of the things that motivates me uh, to be a dynamic have a dynamic faith and be engaged in the church is that I recognize I love the church and I can't change it if I leave it um, and so I think there are times when I challenge things I recently a family member of mine, was uh, told that uh, they they needed to be released because they weren't sticking to the lesson manual, and they were discouraged you know, by that, uh, saying, "Well, I can't teach any other way." And so I said, "No, don't quit. Let me let me go talk to the bishop." I went to talk to the bishop and said, "You know, this is silly. Uh, a really good teacher 
is using materials from different sources, and the question is whether or not that person is doing a good job of teaching the gospel, not whether they're sticking slavishly to the manual. And the bishop said, you're right. Um, I think we ought to keep that person in, the, uh, in that place. You don't always you know, get somebody to agree with you, but if, you, if you're not there, <laughs> you can't change it. And so I want to, and, I, and the other reason that I am there is that in every congregation there are people like me. There are people or people who have issues and, or have doubts and they're afraid to express them or who have uh, observations and they're afraid to share them. We had a man speak in our sacrament meeting a couple of months ago, and he said, uh, I, uh, I don't know whether the Book of Mormon is true. I hope it is. Uh, and he said, uh, I don't know. I can't truly say, honestly say that Joseph Smith was a prophet, but I hope he is. And I, I could see the bishop, his impulse was to get up after that. <laughs> he kind of squirmed a little, huh? <laughs> yeah, he squirmed a little bit and kind of made the impulse like you. I, I said to him, Afterwards, I went up and said, you know, I'm glad you didn't do anything because there are a lot of people in the congregation who, who share those feelings. And isn't it much better to have him say that what an honest uh, talk that was? I, I just really appreciate I went up to the brother and said, I really appreciate what a good talk you had. And I appreciate that you were willing to be open and honest in your feelings. So I think if you're there, you can both be there for other people. And you can be there when, you know, I'll give you another example. If, and if I'm talking too much, let me know. No, but please, during, please share. During Proposition 8, when we were told to take uh, uh, placards out and uh, long uh, uh, signs out and everything, and in the high priest group, and I didn't I didn't do that, the high priest group leader was saying, you know, he'd give everybody, he said, now take these signs out and put them up uh, this week before Proposition 8. And then he said... Of course, they'll have them down within a day. And I said, excuse me, brother, who are they, and how do you know this? Because he was, he was saying that the people, the gays or the people in support of, or against Proposition 8 were going to be out taking down signs, and I, I just challenged his thinking on it, because I just, it just seemed to me that was funny. I try to do that respectfully. I don't often, you know, impulsively... Uh, speak out like that. Sometimes, usually, I will say something to someone after a, a lesson or a meeting, but and I don't always do that. Sometimes I just you know let it go. But I think if we we not that I think I'm trying to be a you know a member of the Ark Study or Society or that I see I see myself <laughs> as the one who's trying to set the church right. But it's part of my sense that it is my spiritual um, and social responsibility to try and make it better recognizing my own limitations uh, in doing so. So I'm, I'm crabby about it sometimes too <laughs> and, uh, and I, I complain to friends about things that uh, I think are crazy or not what they should be but I, I guess kind of how I feel is at the end of uh, Bernard Malibu's novel The Fixer there's no a Jewish person who, who he's, he's really un, unhappy with God and uh, uh, this, uh, uh, or maybe it's a, a younger man. And the rabbi said, "Well, just remember, if he uh, if he's not perfect, neither are you. Or if you're not perfect, neither if he's not perfect, 
He said, if God's not perfect, neither are you, <laughs> which is a funny way of putting it. But I feel that all of us depend upon God's mercy and God's grace and God's forgiveness. And therefore, that's why I, I wrote that about forgiving the church and loving the saints. That we, both of those, I think, are part of our covenantal responsibility. Yeah, that that resonates with me. Going along with what you you spoke about, that there are, there are people in every congregation that um, perhaps have doubts, or perhaps they have a more fringy, <laughs> marginal uh, approach to Mormonism. Since it can be so such a uh, a hostile environment for some of those people, a lot of them suffer in silence, even as they are going through immense struggle, such as a a faith crisis or something like that. And so I know for me personally, I do feel somewhat of an obligation to speak out and even sometimes share some of my crazy, fringy (laughs) approaches to Mormonism, if for no other reason to put myself out there. So that way, those people that that are in the congregation can say, oh, okay, Micah, uh, he's somebody I could talk to. Or, yeah. you know what I mean? Yes, I, mean, I do. So, so I really like that. But at the same time, um, there can be consequences that go along with that. And I have definitely reaped those consequences myself. And, um, and what I'm talking about specifically is just there, there being fallout from, from talking about some of those things. You know, I've um, been very open about my own personal doubts you know, as I've been an instructor in elders quorum and as a Sunday school teacher. And, you know, sometimes the, those things aren't taken too kindly by, by certain ward members and even by certain church leadership. And so how do you navigate that as you're attempting to sort of be a, be a voice and be sort of a, um, a balancing perspective and also as a, a, a sort of to extend yourself as somebody that, that can be approachable to these people? How do you, you know, balance that with the possible negative consequences? How do you navigate that? Well, uh, I think it's a really a good, a good question. I think that if you do it in the right spirit, um, generally that works. If you are kind to people, if you are respectful, if you um, if you try to you know think about them as you know, the golden rule, as if you would like to be treated, but you also have to run risks. And I have suffered the consequences of being uh, a liberal, progressive, Latter Day Saint, uh, and uh, and I I you know, I could tell you some stories, but I won't. Um, but I'm willing to run that risk. And I, nobody's going to drive me out of the church by their stupidity or their ignorance or their lack of charity because, it's, as I say, it's my church too. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I also know that because we have a lay leadership, sometimes you're fortunate to have a bishop who is open-minded and liberal-spirited and who, who is not shocked if you disclose certain things. Uh, sometimes you might not be lucky and have a leader uh, who does, uh, who, who is, isn't open to a more, um, let's say, progressive uh, uh, involvement in the church. But you know, when people ask me, uh, how, why am I the way I am, in terms of, you know, I'm both a, a believer, but I'm also a, a person who I, 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 will, I will try honestly to look at 
any question, no matter what it is, because I think that in, in examining and looking at and thinking about it, we do ourselves and other people and the church a, um, a service. But I think that if we, you know, Carl Keller, a friend of mine who died of AIDS many years ago, said, risk is the only kingdom. I think that we have to be willing to risk certain things in order to gain certain things. And again, I think part of it, Mike, is just to do it in, in a way that, um, that is responsible. Now, the Jews, the, the rabbi fathers, uh, the, the Jewish rabbis, um, the Midrash, which is their commentary on the, uh, the Torah, is just wonderful. It's full of really serious and thoughtful and sometimes really imaginative grappling with Scripture. But they sometimes saw God in what they call the Bet Midrash, the, uh, the, the, the house where you talk about these. They saw God as in there arguing with himself. Now, what did I mean by this? And, you know, challenge, God challenging himself, which is a kind of lovely idea in a way. Um, but going back to what Nibley said, that God, God expects us to serve him fitfully in the tangle of his mind, as uh, Robert, uh, uh, or as, you know, Rob Bolt said in A Man for All Seasons. And so I think that we're all different, but I, th- I think the, the part of the thing that's, that's that I think is wrong with so much of what happens that we are we are afraid to question and so we don't and I I was teaching Sunday school a gospel doctrine class a couple of years ago and we had been through this lesson through correlation about six times and I said to the class you know any one of you can stand up and teach this lesson so, but, so what, what can we do today and then I said the, the answer may lie here what does the uh, the Jewish mother say to her son who comes home from Hebrew school. What does she ask him? And everybody said, well, she asked, did you learn anything? And I said, no. She says, did you ask good questions today? Hmm. And so I said, let's see what kind of good questions we can ask about this lesson that we all know or think we know, and we could, you know, recite the, uh, the scriptures uh, for this lesson, like the, the beads of a rosary. But what is there here that we don't know? And it reminds me of... Uh, Rainer Maria Rilke uh, said, try to love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or books written in a very foreign language. Don't search for the answers which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. So we need to live with those uncertainties and those doubts and those questions. And, And in the tension of living with them, we may come to a, a, an understanding of something that we wouldn't if we just didn't think that there were questions or if we thought we knew all the answers. I mean, that, I think it was John Cage who said, the surest way to know that, uh, that you don't have all the truth is to claim that you do. Very cool. So playing off of that, let's say you, you, are so, you, know, you encounter somebody who does have a questioning spirit and who does like to ask questions, they like to search for information, yet they've been brought up in a, in a culture and with a certain view of, of Mormonism that, that may, may not be in harmony with, with some of the realities they may encounter on places like the Internet. What is your approach to people who have what is now referred to as a, as a faith crisis? You know, for example, somebody finds out something in church history that completely shatters their perspective 
or you know something like that what is your approach uh, to people to help them deal with that and if your objective is to help them stay in the church what is your how, how do you how exactly do you help them do that it's a great question i think the the first thing that one should always do is try and listen with both your ears and your heart Narumi says that we should listen to one another with a deep ear inside our chest, which means our heart, of course. And so when we, when we listen to another person and not are quick to judge, we, it just, most people are not looking for an answer. They're looking for someone to understand. And sometimes if you just let them speak and hear them and understand the pain or the question or whatever, and then to be able to say, that you do understand, and then to say, you know, have you considered this? I have, you know, I happen to have, you know, dialogues with people about the Book of Mormon, and um, because I, I published a lot of stuff on the Book of Mormon, and people will say, well, you know, look, they, he was looking in this hat, that's the silliest thing in the world, and, and, uh, you know, there's all of the stuff that seems like it came from the 19th century, and and so that's something I know something about, and and I and I say, look, I have devoted my life as a textual and uh, uh, literary scholar to studying the Book of Mormon, and I'm convinced that nobody in the 19th century could have written it, or not, nor that all of the people, all of the scholars in the world who'd gotten together in a room with all of the books could have written it. It's far too complex. It's far too um, um, coherent a book. But most people can't read that because they're not trained to, to see the kind of deep textual patterns and rhythms in the book, and so they, they, they give a facile kind of dismissal of it. It is a great and profound sacred text. And part of what I want them to do is, even if they may not think that it's true, I, I want them to I want them to read Lehi's and Nephi's dream because it is an amazing narrative that is in some ways epitomizes the entire gospel. I want them to read what happens in in, in Third Nephi, and so I may not convince them, but if I can at least get them to to kind of approach it with an open heart and mind. And to say, look, maybe you can't, maybe you're not going to resolve this one. All questions aren't going to be resolved. But don't let your relationship to the church hinge on that. There's too much that's good there for you to, because you can't make sense out of the Egyptian papyri, or because you feel the church was uh, wrong in terms of blacks in the priesthood, or you wish the church would uh, be more uh, open and accepting of gays, which I do, um, then, you know, stay and see if we can do, see if we can work together. But, but I think most people want simply to be understood. They want someone who can not condemn them for having questions and not exclude them because they may not fit a particular pattern. We have, we have a lot of minority. I, I attended my daughter's ward in Los Angeles yesterday, and it is maybe it's the Wilshire Ward in the Los Angeles State, and it may be the most diverse church um, uh, congregation in the church. It's wonderful. There are people there from 
uh, from Ghana and people from Belize and people from all over South America. And it's, it is in some ways to me just a wonderful uh, place. But you also have all these people from different cultures, who, some of whom are new in the church, some of whom uh, are naive, some of whom are serious thinkers about it. So within that mix of, I think, every congregation, there is such a diversity, and I think, really, that you know, in this church, you go, you don't choose your congregation, your congregation chooses you. So you, if you love a ward across the street, but it's outside the boundaries of where you live, you, can't just, you can go there, but your membership is going to stay in the ward you're in. And I think there, there's a design in that, and that is that we are in a congregation with people that we wouldn't ever choose to be with otherwise, many of them. But we are there on Sundays with them, and we are called, I think, to worship the Lord together and to make, try and make something happen there, which, as I say, is sometimes holy and sometimes sacred, but it's mostly good. Cool. I think um, part of what causes people so much turmoil is, you know, we hear statements from church leaders saying things like it's either all true or it's all false false mm-hmm. they sort of present this black and white premise and so and so i think a lot of people who have some 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 critical doubts they their doubts come from taking the church at its word you know for example you know having that that sort of uh strict dichotomy between uh or distinguishment between it's it's either 100% true or in other words 100% certain or it's it's completely false. I think that sort of gives people almost that sucker's choice where they've got to pick one or the other. And so since they can't reconcile it, they decide to go with the latter. So how when you're addressing people that, that are having this experience, how is it that you can sort of help them paint some gray into their perspective? Well, it's a, again, it's an excellent question. And I think we should always <laughs> try to avoid categorical thinking. Right. Um, because our life itself, I mean, life itself is not that way. Life itself is such a an admixture of the black and the white and the gray and all of the shades uh, in between. It is a mixture by design of sorrow and happiness. It's a mixture by design of doubt and faith. And so we need to let people know that it's really normal to, to do that. Um, you know, what, what is Christ on the cross is, is astonished. How can it be that God is abandoning me in this hour in which I am doing what he's called me to do and which is the, 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 the highest calling that I have, the greatest act of love? How can God abandon me? He's, he's astonished by that as he's astonished in the garden where he falls on his face as he's so overcome. And... So he passes through all of that, and and by design we are to pass through this spook alley of a, of a life, this uh, this this labyrinth of mortality, because it's necessary for our growth. And so it is, it seems to me, a a willingness to entertain paradox, a willingness to live in that area of uncertainty. Not entirely and not always, but to let it be a part of our experience and to 
shun the easy answers, the easy resolutions, and to um, to try and avoid that um, black and white kind of thinking because because there's there's very little in life that really is that way, whether it's the church or whether it's our marriage or whether it's with our relationship with our children, whether it's work, it's all such a dynamic mixture of things. And it is that there's something, I think, really wonderful in that, that we need to to acknowledge and to celebrate and to accept. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you 100%. And, you know, as we've sort of started this podcast and had the opportunity to speak with a lot of individuals like yourself that, you know, have been um, swimming in the waters of <laughs> of intellectual Mormonism for for a long time, I find that to be a very common theme between people like yourself and Terrell Givens and Phil Barlow, where you really embrace the fact that there are questions that don't have answers and that there are paradoxes and that there are, you know, as Terrell Givens says, equal reasons to doubt and believe. What's beautiful about that is in the mix of all that, that's where true agency is able to exist. And so, so I, you know, as as we've done this podcast, that's something that I've been uh, been really appreciative is that that perspective has been uh, sort of expounded upon, and I appreciate your thoughts there too. So, um, moving forward, um, I really want to spend some time um, talking about your Sunstone article, forgiving the church and loving the saints. We've touched on a few of the the different uh, themes in there already. But would you mind telling our audience a little bit about uh, this article, perhaps even share with us what uh, what prompted you to write it and perhaps give us a quick introduction to uh, what it is you're discussing there? Well, I think for me it is that, uh, just as I said, all of us throw ourselves on the mercy of Christ. We all need forgiveness from, from the Lord. We all have necessity, and by the grace of God, have to throw ourselves on the mercy of the Lord. We have to ask for forgiveness, and we are, you know, we have a merciful God. And since we have to ask God for forgiveness, we should be willing to forgive others, and we should be willing to forgive the church. The church, even though we speak of it as the true church, it is a imperfect and sometimes a crude instrument in the, in in our hands. And so, the the church makes mistakes. The church does things that hurt people. And we should, you know, we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't just accept that, but we should also be forgiving of the church because I, it is, it is a difficult thing to be a general authority. I don't say that by experience, but I say it by observation and by the fact that I have friends who are general authorities. And it's, uh, Nibley speaks of the priesthood as an onerous burden, I think being a general authority is an onerous burden because you're, you are called upon to, deal with a very diverse church that is now in you know, many, many nations around the world. You face all kinds of challenges. You also have, because we have the kind of system we have for elevating and um, choosing the prophet. You have people who uh, are not, uh, not always as modern as you would like them to be. You also have a a church structure that uh, requires, uh, or at least it doesn't require, but operates on the principle of nearly unanimity before major decisions are made. And so, 
as we anybody who reads the history of the church uh, has to be aware that there have been problems. Uh, we I teach the history of anti-Mormonism in my course at Graduate Theological Union, and the fact of the matter is that Mormons were talking about exterminating their neighbors long before Governor Boggs said anything about exterminating the Mormons. I mean, we did not behave as Christians uh, should, at least in, not entirely, when we went into Missouri. Uh, there was times that Joseph Smith made mistakes. And so I think we need to forgive our local leaders. I think we need to forgive our regional leaders. I think we need to forgive our general authorities. Uh, but we also, I mean, they are called, and therefore we have expectations of them. But I, it's that, it's, I just, I think that we can be so critical sometimes that we forget that it's hard to do what they do. It doesn't mean that we just, you know, accept anything they say or do blindly, but it's to recognize that they're human beings like we are. And the same thing is loving the saints. Uh, we are called upon to do that. That is part of our covenant of partaking of the sacrament. It's part of our covenant of being baptized. It's certainly part of our covenant in the temple. Uh, that we that we love people who, who who are not lovable sometimes. We love people who are who hurt us and do things unkind to us and treat us in ways that we shouldn't be treated. So, but part of it also part of that was also the, the subtitle of that article was spiritual evolution in the kingdom of God, and in that. I talk about Lawrence Kohlberg's uh, paradigm of the, the stages of spiritual evolution, in which he talks there, are, he, he identifies, and people, some people are critical of the work, but I think it's a, a useful construct, that we can, there are six possible stages of moral development, beginning from the time when we're totally self-absorbed, and we just want to be fed and clothed and changed, and whatever we want to do as babies, and some of us never grow out of that, to where we start doing things because we want to avoid punishment or we do things because we want to get a reward. And eventually, Kohlberg says, we may get to the point where we do things that not in our best interest, but they're in the best interest of the group or of the community. And then ultimately we may get to the point where we are like Gandhi and, um, and Christ and other people who's, and Buddha who's, whose whole orientation is out from the heart out to others. So as we think about those stages of moral development, if you're at stage five, you can really look down and be really critical of people who are stage two, three, or four and think of them as really not enlightened or whatever. But in a sense, as you go higher on the, the scale of moral development, I think you have greater charity for people who are who are less enlightened or less righteous or less spiritual or less good or whatever. And also, and I think this is really an important point, nobody in, except Jesus lived at six all the time. We are moving back and forth. In some weeks, I'm, you know, I'm down there muddling around two and three, and sometimes I rise to, uh, to a four and five, and occasionally I may have moments of being in, uh, at the level of six where I'm really acting out of the purest, motives, but I, you know, I I don't stay there all the time, but the whole idea is that slowly we move up through those stages, kind of like the chambered nautilus. Uh, we, we shed those, uh, those lesser uh, stages and move so that, we're, so that we 
you know, and this is Latter-day Saint believeness, we believe in eternal progression. But by recognizing that we are in a continuum, and we are, and sometimes we, we act as if we're all, you know, one church and one people moving forward, and we're not. We're just this mix, this melange of, uh, of wounded and imperfect saints, and so therefore we need to really have charity and forgiveness for one another as we strive to do the work of the Lord. Cool. Yeah, I'm glad you talked about you know your integration of Kohlberg's um, paradigm because uh, I, I found that very interesting, and it also is somewhat reminiscent, I think, of uh, uh, Fowler's stages of faith as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in your in the beginning of your your article, you also talk about um, the concept of the church as a mirror. Would you mind explaining that? Yeah, I think uh, you know. Uh, Neurologists you know, talk about the mirror impulse, uh, the, the mirror, the, the, whatever they might talk about, how they might speak about it. But babies look to their mother, so their mother's face they look is a mirror. You know, so you have this wonderful kind of thing. I saw this little baby in church yesterday and, and made eye contact with her. She was just this beautiful little, you know, eight month old baby, and she was so beautiful that she, she locked eyes with me. And I smile at her, and she just gave this big smile back. And so we, we grow from that time where we're looking uh, at, uh, at other people to, in a sense, the whole world is a mirror for us. And so the, the church reflects back to us to some extent where we are in that level of, uh, uh, of spiritual, emotional uh, progression. And so um, each of us, in some sense, sees the church through the prism of our own gifts as well as our own limitations. And therefore, you know, I, I think I, in, in the talk, I think I talk about the fact that when I was 16, 17, God was very concerned about hormones. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when I was a missionary for... 26 months in the Northern States Mission as a 19-year-old, God was uh, pretty much focused on uh, on missionary work, although I see occasionally he was also focused on hormones, but most of the time he was focused <laughs> on my doing my, my work and uh, learning to be effective missionary. When I went to graduate school, God seemed to me to be more concerned about academic stuff. When I was married, God suddenly became concerned about what kind of a father, a husband I was, and so that each stage of my life, I was looking at God through the prism of my own experience, and that, and I also was looking at the church in that way. When my children were teenagers, I, I, I just loved the fact that I, they could go to um, the young men's and young women's. We call it MIA in those days. And they could be taught by some of the, the most wonderful people in the world, people I couldn't afford to hire to teach my children and take them on scouting uh, activities or take them on moral activities or teach them seminary or whatever. And so I, I saw the church as very family-oriented during that time. The church was a mirror of what I needed and what I wanted uh, out of the church. And so, if we recognize a lot of people are looking at the church, and what they're what they're looking at is, is, is the church is a mirror of who they are, 
And if they're really insecure, then the church to them is a is a very safe and secure place that they can go to, hopefully, where they see it as a reflection of, of themselves. If they are in um, in need of companionship, they see the church as a kind of a place to socialize. So I think that the and I think that's true of all of us that we that what we see any place in the world to some extent is a reflection of both our ability to to perceive what's out there, but also a reflection of who we are and where we are at a particular point. And so that's why we need to recognize that people are at different places and they see the church in different ways. And we have to be aware of that. And again, I think have an abundant amount of charity for that those differences. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. Um, I have a, I have a question about that. Um, but before I ask the question, I wanted to um, specifically uh, talk about an excerpt from that section where you're talking about the church as a mirror. Um, I really I really loved uh, your use of of Moby Dick as an example. And just as a as a quick summary, in Herman Melville's novel, of course, Captain Ahab. Um, has a ship and a crew, and they're out there trying to hunt down the, the the big white whale. And as sort of a motivation for his crew, he takes a gold doubloon and nails it to the to the to a part of the ship to show, and basically telling his crew that whoever spots the whale first will will get to have this prize. And um, but what's what's interesting in the novel is as as the different crew members looked at that doubloon, they all viewed it as as different things. You know, one crew member. Um, you know, sees it as uh, as nothing more than just a piece of gold worth sixteen dollars, whereas somebody else looks at it as a sign of the devil, and and so on and so forth. And then um, you actually quoted from the book where Ahab says, "Quote: This round gold is but the image of the rounder globe, which, like a magician's glass, to each and every man in turn, but mirrors back his own mysterious self." And then you say. Like Ahab's doubloon, the church is a mirror into which all the saints look and see a reflection of their unique individual selves. It reflects back to each of us what we are and where we are in our moral or spiritual development. And I think that's really beautiful, but the the question I have is, for somebody who is angry or bitter towards the church, what it, and if the church is a mirror, what is that? what do you think that's saying? Well, I think what it's saying is that we need to be aware of the fact that all of us see the church in a limited way. Uh, that you know, the, the, it's a, it's trite to speak about this about the you know the six blind men and the elephant, but to some extent that's a useful uh, image because we we all see it differently and 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 yet none of us see it wholly. W h o l l y. None of us see it completely. And so we, we see it in some, some extent both by our character and by our character limitations. We see it by our needs as well as by the, our, our aspirations. And so if we recognize that we are all looking at the church, but we're all seeing it in a different way, then, and, and we, we assume we're all seeing it the same. We're assuming that the church is this kind of monolithic thing that exists, and you can objectively say what it is. But we we all look at it out of our own needs and out of our own limitations. And I I use that image. I just uh, by the way, I just uh, two weeks ago I went to see the opera Moby Dick. In the opera, 
they um, uh, they're uh, Ahab nails the doubloon there. I thought of this essay, and I and it was interesting to see that played out as each of the characters in the opera comes up and looks at that. And again, one could say it's just you know it's just a doubloon, but for each of the characters, it it tells it, it tells who they are. And in some ways, this is what I'm trying to say: how we respond to the church reveals as much about who we are as it reveals about what the church is. Okay. Yeah, I think that's really cool. The the thing that I was worried about when I read that is I wonder if somebody would read that and say, oh, so I was worried that people may feel invalidated about their own experiences, that perhaps, you know, their whatever their concerns are or their doubts are, are uh, I would hate for somebody to read that and think, oh, he's saying it's just a reflection on my own whatever, it, rather than being a, a real genuine issue, but that, that doesn't sound like what you're saying. And, and you know, all, all metaphors break down at some point. <laughs> right. That, that one would in, in that sense. And I, I, would, I would hope that what, uh, what people would see is that what, what I was talking about is that the, the, the diversity of how we see the, um, the church. Cool. Well, the, the last thing I want to talk about um, that's also from your from your essay here. Um, you just spent a lot of time explaining to us how Kolber's stages of moral development apply to us as individuals, and and how that integrates into our relationship with the church as we continue to grow and develop. And the church will obviously serve different needs to us as we as we move through that development, as we as we look through that mirror. But what I thought was probably the the best part, or or in my to me the most meaningful part, is that you also apply uh, Kohlberg's um, stages of moral development to the church itself as an institution, and how the church is. And you've uh, you've alluded to this earlier. The church is a dynamic thing that is always changing and evolving, and perhaps itself is moving through different stages of moral development itself. And so tell, tell us a little bit about that, that concept. Well, um, you know, the, the Lord uses that image of a living church, which means that he's using an organic uh, uh, image there. And that means that if it's living, then hopefully it is growing, although it could be dying. Uh, I don't think that it is. But what I think it means in some ways, at least for me, it means that I, again, if we think about this metaphor, it's a garden in another way, and I'm one of the gardeners. It's part of my job to tend the garden of the church and to do what I can to make it a more, a more beautiful garden. And so the church, you know, people, again, the mistake people make is that they think, well, the, you know, the, we we wait for the brethren to tell us what to do. The, the welfare program, the perpetual education fund, and so many things started at the grassroots level. So many things ha- that are significant in the church happened because individuals saw the church and see the church as a collective responsibility. It is a collective stewardship. And so the church itself is evolving, devolving, it depends on what we, what do we want the church to be, uh, and some people just bail out of the church and and kind of dismiss it and try to find whatever they want someplace else. But for me, I want the church to be better than it is. I was not satisfied uh, when I was in 
you know, during the 60s and the civil rights movement, I was not satisfied that what we were doing in relation to blacks was right. I, I was disturbed by that. And um, when Lester Bush, I was editor of Dialogue, when Lester Bush's landmark article came across my desk um, and I saw it, I thought, my gosh, this is, this is such an astonishing piece of scholarship. It has to be published. I was, you know, I was told, not by my ecclesiastical leader, but by somebody very close to me and who was rather high up, uh, not a general authority, but a figure of some stature, that I could lose my church membership over it. I didn't take that lightly. In fact, it was very sobering to me. But I just felt that what Bush had done was to show in such a dispassionate, careful, responsible way that there was no scriptural or revelatory foundation for that belief or for that practice. President McKay didn't call it a doctrine. He said, we have what we believe is an inspired practice. But he was very uncomfortable with it. Um, And so I thought, for me, the responsible thing was to try and have a dialogue about this, to try and examine it, to talk about it. Is it a reflection of of our best, the best that we believe and the best that we can behave? So, you know, some people think, well, that revelation was given and then the revelation was rescinded and President Kimball got a, got a revelation, but they don't look at the context in which there were a number of people in the church, a growing number of people, who were uncomfortable with that doctrine and, and that practice, and who questioned it. And so when President Kimball was wrestling with this, he read Lester Bush's article. He had it all underlined. Well, was it a factor in him coming to the decision? I think it was. I think there were probably a number of other things, including what was going on with the church in Brazil, where there was so much intermarriage that nobody could tell who was black and who wasn't. In an article that I published in Sunstone a couple of years ago on that was based on the discovery of a, not my discovery, but discovery by geneticists, British geneticists, that there has been in Africa for a couple of thousand years have been a group of, of Africans who are descendants from a group of Israel, of, of, of Jews who left Jerusalem and went to Sena and then sailed down the African coast and intermarried with black people and, and DNA shows that those people have been entitled to the priesthood for a couple thousand years. <laughs> they are descendants of the priestly class. They have the Kahnheim um, DNA. And so essentially we were being influenced in the church by uh, the cultural overlays of Western culture that saw blacks as cursed and saw them as unworthy and unrighteous and all of that. And so we were part in the 19th century of a racist uh, culture. And so it was not surprising that we uh, adopted some of those racist tenets, even though Joseph Smith himself ordained people to um, to the priesthood, blacks to the priesthood. So um, I think that we we can change the church. We can we can make the church better, and we can be better. It isn't just that we're sitting out here, you know, being critics. We we have to change. The church is a reflection of who we are, and that goes back to the image of the doubloon. The church is no better or no worse than we are. It can be better, and we can be better. But it's it will only be better as we collectively work to make it better, and as we are 
trying to make it and our own lives a greater reflection of who Jesus was and what Jesus taught. And so I am where I am in terms of the kind of Latter-day Saint I am and try to be because that's where the New Testament leads me and that's where the Book of Mormon leads me. I, I, I'm, I, I'm aware of the fact that other people may feel led in other places and I, I can only take responsibility for my own life. But my own life says to me what I read in King Benjamin's address, or what I read in uh, Mosiah, what I read in Moroni, what I read in Third Nephi, what I read in the Gospel of Matthew, that informs the kind of Latter-day Saint I try to be. I'm, I'm an imperfect manifestation of that. But those are my guiding texts and the guiding spirit. And I want the church to be better. I want the church to be more tolerant. I want it to be more open. I want it to be less racist. I want it to be less sexist. I want it to be less Republican. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm here for the long haul. I'm here because it's my church and I want it to be better and I want to be better. I love that. I think the church can help me be a better person. It has, the church has transformed me and has given me hope that I can continue to be transformed and hope that I can continue to play some small role in the transformation and evolution of the church. Yeah, that's, that's really beautiful. You know, because what, you know, we, I know for myself, you know, I grew up with this sort of notion of this uh, top down hierarchy and that the church is there to receive revelation from on high and then distribute it down to me. And it's sort of a, almost a one-way street where, you know, I'm supposed to be receiving guidance and adhering to counsel. But what I hear you describing is something that's very different. Um, and going back to your, your, your metaphor of the mirror of the gold doubloon in the same way that, you know, we are, when we look at the church, we see a reflection of ourselves the church is also, as you said, a reflection of us. And and so what you're describing is instead of a top-down relationship, what you're describing is a very symbiotic relationship where not only does the church feed us and influence us, but we also, we also give that back and, and offer our own input. And, um, and I think that's, that's a beautiful way to approach the, the church. Um, some people may... F- may consider that heresy, but <laughs> but I, I love that, and I think, believe, I think we should we own that. In, we believe not only in continuing revelation, but we believe in horizontal and vertical revelation, and that the, there, in fact, there are, there, there is enlightenment that goes from the bottom up, and there's enlightenment that comes from the top down, and hopefully those are Compatible and in accord, or if they aren't, that they find a, there's a way to, uh, you know, to to accommodate them. But we, are, I, there's a lot of Latter Saints who are just passive receptors of whatever is spoken and whatever's come down. And I, Brigham Young warned against that. He, he, his greatest fear, he said, was that the Saints would accept what the Brethren said without uh, without questioning it. Uh, Hubie Brown, in this great talk he gave at BYU, 
they're called an eternal quest, freedom of the mind. Uh, yeah. he, you know, he said this to the students at BYU. We call upon you students to exercise your God-given right to think through on every proposition that is submitted to you and be unafraid to express your opinions. Uh, be unafraid to express your thoughts and to insist upon your right to examine every proposition. And that is a member of the First Presidency hmm. telling us that that's our responsibility. Um, and yet a lot of people <laughs> don't, you know, would, would be, would find that probably shocking coming from a member of the First Presidency. And he, you know, the other thing he said, which again, I don't, I, you, you probably would never have heard anybody else say this, we are not so much concerned with whether your thoughts are orthodox or heterodox as we are that you shall have thoughts. In other words, President Brown is saying, look, I, I'll run the risk of you get, getting involved in heterodoxy in your pursuit of orthodoxy, but for heaven's sake, think. For heaven's sake, believe. For heaven's sake, be engaged in this church in a dynamic way, don't you know? I, 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 because I have a lot of friends, family, and associates. I'm very much aware, Mike, that there, that people filter out things. So I, there are certain people I know. I will never get any positive news from them about the church. <laughs> there are other people I'll know. I'll never get any negative news about the church. They filter out anything that doesn't fit their idea of what the church should be. And so the people, on the one hand miss all the good things about the church because they, they can't, they're so, they've so removed themselves from that that they, they can't take in the goodness. On the other hand, there are people who are so fearful uh, that they can't take any of the criticism or take in any of the dark things. And it is in looking at the dark things that we sometimes find the light. And it's looking at the light that we sometimes see the dark. And that's a part of what this paradox we call mortality and what is part of the eternal nature of things. God is aware of the dark and has put us in a world in which there is a lot of dark. And we run from it at our peril just as we flee from the goodness and the light at our peril. Hmm. Yeah, I like that a lot. And, um, you know, going along with that, I think, uh, for me, what I find uh, painful about people who decide to leave, you know, I'm not, I'm not worried about them spiritually or their salvation, which is, seems to be the grief of, of many saints for people that leave. I'm just sad because it, it saddens me because I feel like I need them, you know, yeah, and I, yeah. and I think that. You know, I think the 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 beauty that I find in Mormonism is something that that uh, that isn't always reflected in my in my Mormon experience, and I think the only way to improve that is is by having a diversity of voices and a diversity of perspectives. And if and unfortunately, when people meet resistance as they express their dissent, they choose to leave. And I think it's a sad thing. And I think that the church and us are worse off without those people there. And so, you know, I, that's why I really appreciate your approach, Bob, because I think it allows room for us to, to, to have a diversity of views and perspectives. And, uh, and I think as we have that, as we, as we reflect that off of the mirror, 
the church will grow and change and mature and uh, will become better for it. Well, you, you just said something that I think is so important. Um, we need those people. I mean, one of the things that saddens me about the whole issue of uh, the church and, uh, and homosexuality is that those people need to be <laughs> in the church, and many of them want to be. And some of them uh, disfellowship or communicate themselves. Some of them have been treated in, uh, in a really uh, unkind and unloving ways. But um, uh, we need them, and they need us. And we, uh, the church is, is, is not as, uh, as great a church because many of those people who could bless us are not here. They're not in the church, and uh, we need to find ways of of making people who feel estranged or feel imperfect or feel unwanted. We need we need to make them a, a place for them to be in in the church. The church is a place for sinners. Uh, a church is a place for imperfect people, and we need to. You know, we need them. They need us. We need one another. This is, you know, this is what we're we're involved in. And so, I I love the way in which you you frame that. And and I I see people on the outside of the church, and it saddens me because many of them, I think, are doing things that don't lead to them. So I'm not saying everybody's left the church is unhappy because I have a lot of friends who left the church are very happy. And I'm not saying everybody has to be in the church to be happy. But what I'm saying is that by and large, there's such a goodness in the church and so many great blessings of being engaged in the church, if one can, can do it, that, um, that, that to me, it makes me sad that they're not here because I want them to be here. I want the members of my family who are not active in the church and I, I want them to be here. Um, so, uh, if if we can, if we can, in fact, evolve to a place where we can be more accepting, if we can be more tolerant, if we can be more loving, I think it would serve the church um, uh, much better. Amen to that. Amen to that. Well, Bob Reese, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I think that's a great place to stop. Um, we will post, um, with, with the, uh, release of this episode, we will also post some links, um, to some of, uh, Bob's articles. We'll also, uh, give a link, uh, to the, uh, why I stay, uh, collection of essays that he, um, has put together. And, um, we would encourage our listeners to, uh, go onto the website, uh, leave us your comments and, um, uh, I'm sure Brother Reese here would love to stop in and engage with some of our audience, perhaps field some questions there. And um, thank you again for joining us, Bob. Uh, it's my pleasure, and thank you, Mike. It's been a nice uh, time uh, having this conversation with you. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, take care. Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. 
The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com. Mind my